Chapter Four of the Boy Scouts of Woodcraft Camp by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four: The Initiation. Messover, Woodhall, and Seaforth took their stand at either side of the door, and Walter noted as each boy passed out he saluted the two chiefs with a scout salute, and was saluted in return. It was a point of etiquette which he learned was never omitted and which did much to maintain discipline and to instill the principles of respect for superior officers once outside the mess-room walter was free to inspect the camp in detail and at his leisure for it being his first day he was not assigned to any of the duty squads there were fifty-two boys in camp including the four leaders or chiefs and they were from all quarters two being from as far west as chicago they represented all classes in the social scale a few were from homes of extreme wealth, and one, according to Billy, was a Boston newsboy in whom the doctor took a personal interest. But in accordance with scout ideals, all were on equal footing in the camp, and the most democratic spirit prevailed. Achievement in scoutcraft alone furnished a basis for distinction. The camp had been established three years before the Boy Scouts of America came into existence, but Dr. Miriam had been quick to perceive the value of the new movement the principles of which are, in fact, the very ones he had been seeking to inculcate in his unique school. This year the camp had been placed under scout regulations, and it was the doctor's desire to send every one of his boys home at the end of summer as qualified scouts of the first class, fitted to take the leadership of home patrols. Approaching from behind the woodpile where Buxby's assignment to duty was keeping him busy, Walter heard his own name and paused, uncertain whether to go on or not. Billy was regaling the cook with an account of Walter's exploit of the morning as he had wormed it out of Big Jim. "'Pretty spry with his fists, they say,' concluded the talkative Billy. Then he added as an afterthought, "'Bet they'll get his goat tonight, though.' Walter waited to hear no more. He had not been wholly unconscious of the sly looks and mysterious winks passed between some of the boys he had met, and though he did not allow it to show outwardly, he was inwardly not a little perturbed by the thought of the initiatory ordeal he felt sure he must undergo. Chief Woodhull's hint, together with the frequent exchange of meaning glances which he had intercepted, could mean but one thing, that his nerve and courage were to be put to some strange and crucial test. Therefore it was with some trepidation that, with the sounding of taps that night, Walter sought his bunk and turned in. In five minutes lights were out, and apparently the camp had settled down for the night. Walter lay listening in suspense for some sound which would indicate that secret designs concerning himself were afoot, but nothing but the regular breathing of twenty-five healthy, tired boys rewarded his vigilance. It had been a long, strenuous day, with little rest the night before, and in spite of himself he soon fell asleep. He was awakened by the sudden removal of his blanket. Despite his struggle he was bound and gagged, then his arms were loosed enough for his flannel shirt to be slipped on. His trousers and shoes followed. Then he was rolled in his blanket, picked up bodily, and carried forth into the night. In absolute silence his captors bore him along what appeared to be a rough, little-used trail. Occasionally a dew-damp twig brushed his face. Through the tangle of interlacing branches overhead he caught glimpses of the stars. The number of his captors he had no means of knowing, he was carried by relays, and though there were frequent changes, he could not tell whether each time a new team of bearers took him or two teams alternated. 
Once his bearers stumbled and nearly dropped him. Once they seemed to lose the trail, stopping to hold a whispered consultation of which the victim could only catch a word here and there. After what seemed like an interminable length of time, Walter heard in the distance the tremolo of a screech owl, answered by a similar call close at hand. A few minutes later they emerged in an opening. "'Are the canoes ready?' asked a subdued but sepulchral voice. "'They are, chief,' was the guarded reply. "'And let them be manned,' was the order. Walter was carefully placed in a canoe amidship. He felt it gently shoved off, and then it floated idly, while, to judge by the sounds, the other canoes were hastily put in the water. Presently, at a low command from the rear of his own craft, there was a dip of many paddles, and he felt the light craft shoot forward. Flat on his back he could see little, but the stars sprinkled the heavens. It seemed to him that never had he seen the stars so bright or apparently so near. By straining up and forward he caught the shadowy outline of the bowman's back, but the second time he tried it he was warned to desist. Out of the tail of his left eye he sometimes caught the arm and paddle of the stern man on the forward reach, but thus far there had been nothing to give him the slightest idea whether he was in the hands of members of his own tribe or a captive of one of the rival tribes. Swiftly, silently, save for the light splash of paddles and the gurgling ripple at the bow, the canoe sped on. Never will Walter forget the spell of that mysterious night ride on that lonely lake in the heart of the great north woods. His gag had been removed, and, but for inability to move hand or foot, he was not uncomfortable. All the witchery of night in the forest was enhanced a hundredfold by the mystery of his abduction and the unknown trials awaiting him. A mighty chorus of frogs denoted low, marshy land somewhere in the vicinity. Strange voices of furtive wild things floated across from the shore. Once a heavy splash close to the canoe set his heart to thumping fiercely until he rightly surmised that it was made by a startled muskrat, surprised at his nocturnal feast of mussels. Again, as they slipped through the heavy shadows close along shore, there was a crash in the underbrush, which might or might not have been a deer. It was weird, uncanny, trying in the extreme, yet sending little electric thrills of fascination through the nerves of the city boy. How long the journey lasted, Walter could not tell but he judged that it was at least half an hour before there suddenly broke out ahead a cry, so human yet so wild that he felt the very roots of his hair crawl. Once more it rang over the lake, a high-pitched maniacal laugh that rolled across the water and was flung back in crazy echoes from the shores. In a flash it came to Walter that this must be the cry of the loon, the great northern diver of which he had often read. This time it was answered from the rear. A few minutes later the canoe grated on the shore. Walter was lifted out, his eyes bandaged, the bonds removed from his legs, and with a captor on either side he was led for some distance along what seemed like an old corduroy logging road. On signal from the leader a halt was made, and the bandage was removed from the captive's eyes. Curiously he glanced about, but in the faint light he could make out little. Apparently they were in the middle of a small opening in the forest, on all sides a seemingly unbroken wall of blackness, the forest, hemmed them in. In a half-circle before him squatted some two dozen blanketed forms. One of these now arose and stepped forward. He was tall and rather slender, in the uncertain light his features appeared to be those of an Indian. 
single feather in his scalp lock was silhouetted against the sky a blanket was loosely but gracefully draped about his figure standing in front of the captive he drew himself up proudly to his full height and leveling a long bare arm at the prisoner addressed him in a deep guttural pale-face dweller in wigwams of brick and stone it is made known to us that your heart turns from the settlements to the heart of the great forest and that you desire to become a child of the lenape whose totem is the tortoise to be adopted by the delawares the tribe of uncas and chingakook that you long to follow the trail of the red deer and to spread your blanket beside the sweet waters to read the message of the blowing wind and interpret aright the meaning of every fallen leaf you have come among us pale face not unheralded our ears have been filled with a tale of valor it has warmed the hearts of the delawares and their brothers the algonquins our young men have had their ears to the ground they have followed your trail and they yearn to make a place for you in their council fire but lest the tales to which they have listened prove to be but the chirping of a singing bird it has been decided in secret council that you must undergo the test of the spirits alone in the wigwam of the spirits where it is said on the fifth night in every month the spirit of a departed brave stricken in the prime of his manhood comes seeking the red hand of his slayer here alone you shall keep watch through the black hours of the night thus shall we know if your heart be indeed the heart of the nape if you are of the stuff of which the delaware warriors are made if our ears have heard truly or if they have indeed been filled with the foolish chatter of a whiskey-jack canada jay if you meet this trial as a warrior should making neither sign nor sound whatever befall then will the delawares receive you with open arms no longer a pale-face but a true son of the tortoise a blood brother for whom a place in the council chamber is even now ready turning to the shadowy group squatting in silence he threw out both arms dramatically sons of the lenape do i speak truly he demanded a chorus of guttural grunts signified assent turning once more to the captive the speaker asked pale-face are you prepared to stand the test as the harangue had proceeded walter had recalled that during the afternoon he had heard vague references to a haunted cabin across the lake now the conviction was forced upon him that this was the place in which he was to be left to spend the night alone in spite of himself a shiver of something very like fear swept over him for the mystery of the night was upon him but he had firmly resolved not to show the white feather then again he was possessed of a large bump of sound common sense and he felt certain that if when left alone he gave way to fear sharp eyes and ears would be within range to note and gloat over it in fact he shrewdly suspected that spies would be watching him and that his solitude would be more apparent than real he therefore replied i am ready thereupon the leader gave some brief directions to the band of whom all but two trailed off in single file and disappeared in the blackness of the forest 
Presently he heard the faint clatter of paddles carelessly dropped in canoes and surmised that his late companions were embarking for camp. A few minutes later the hoot of a horned owl came from the direction they had taken. This seemed to be a signal for which his guard had been waiting. Once more the bandage was placed over his eyes, and he was led for some distance along an old tote road. At length a halt was called. His legs were bound, and he was picked up and carried a short distance. Although he could see nothing, he was aware by the change of air that they had entered a building. He suspected that this was the haunted cabin. He was deposited on a rough board floor with what appeared to be a roll of old burlap beneath his head. He was told that his hands and feet would be freed of their bonds, but he was put upon his honor not to remove the bandage from his eyes for half an hour. "'Keep your nerves, son.' and don't sit up suddenly, was whispered in his ear. He could not be sure, but he had a feeling that the speaker was Woodhull, and to himself he renewed his vow that, come what might, he would not show the white feather. He heard his captor silently withdraw, and then all was silent. Cautiously he felt around him. Sticks and bits of bark littered the floor. Rough-hewn logs shut him in on one side, but the other— as far as he could reach was open space. Feeling above, he found that there was not room to sit upright. He thanked his unknown friend for that last timely warning. The silence grew oppressive. It was broken by a light thump on the roof, followed by the rasp of swift little claws. Squirrels, thought Walter, after the first startled jump. Gradually he became aware of a feeling that he was not the only tenant in the cabin. Once he heard something that sounded very like a long-drawn sigh. He held his breath and listened. There was not another sound. What were those tales that he had heard of a cabin being haunted? He tried to recall them. How far from the camp was he? Would they come for him in the morning, or would he have to find his way in alone? In spite of his strange surroundings and lively imagination, Walter found difficulty in keeping awake. Outraged nature was asserting herself. There had been little sleep for more than twenty-four hours, and now even the uncertainty of his position could keep him awake no longer. In fact, he had not even removed the bandage from his eyes when he fell sound asleep. He was awakened by having this suddenly snatched off. For a few minutes he blinked stupidly while a mighty shout from the entire wigwam greeted him. O oh, warrior tried and true, we hereby welcome you. We like your nerve, we like your sand. A place you've won within our band. You've won your feather fair. You are a Delaware. Then Walter was hauled forth and shaken hands and thumped and pounded on the back by a whooping, laughing crew of boys in all stages of undress. It was broad daylight, and to his amazement, Walter found he was not in the haunted cabin, but in his own wigwam where he had spent the night on the floor underneath his own bunk. The boys, noting the expression on his face, shouted afresh and mercilessly guide him, till presently, realizing how completely he had been duped, he wisely joined the laugh at his own expense. Reveille had sounded. Buxby joined him at the wash bench, and on the way to mess explained how the initiation was worked. When he had been placed in the canoe, they had simply paddled around near camp for half an hour, and had then been led over an old trail to an opening near but out of sight of the camp, and there Woodhull, in the character of the Indian chief, had delivered the harangue. 
At its conclusion, all but the guard had gone to the wigwam and at once turned in, one of them first slipping down to the lake and rattling the paddles, afterward giving the owl signal. The guard had then led him back to the wigwam and put him under his own bunk, where the floor had been strewn with chips of bark to fool him when he felt around, as they had foreseen he would. "'You're all right, Upton. And say, wasn't Lewis a Lulu?' concluded a garrulous boy. At mess, Walter realized that he had made good, and was already accepted as one of themselves by the merry crew of sun-brown youngsters, amongst whom he had come a total stranger less than twenty-four hours before. Most of all he prized Woodhull's quiet good boy as he saluted him at the door. End of chapter 4